Welcome to Bridging Chicago, a podcast that aims to connect our listeners to Chicago's business, community, cultural, and charity leaders. Brought to you by the SATC Solutions Center. You can connect with us on Instagram or Twitter where our handle is at Bridging Chicago. For more information, including our email, visit us online at satcsolutions.com. Be sure to rate and subscribe to Bridging Chicago on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Bridging Chicago. I'm Savannah Roundtree, your host today, and joining me today we have Dan Tosk. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank um, you. We are both of us located in the Chicago area, and we are still um, on lockdown. And so today, everyone, we'd like you to bear with us as we use some remote recording equipment. So, um, if today's episode seems a little um, different than usual, you know, Dan and I are not sitting face to face today, and we're um, using some remote recording equipment. So, bear with us if you hear any extra sounds and um you know thanks again to dan for trying out this uh new recording equipment with us absolutely we can't even see each other's face but we'll do our best (laughs) yeah it's a very new uh podcast recording experience for me usually i can uh look the person in the eye and we're having a bit of a conversation but we will certainly do our best so dan is um a tenant specialist at mid america real estate corporation and he leads their urban tenant representative Presentation group. Um, I'm really interested later to get into talking about the urban grocery study that you author, as well as all of the cannabis expertise that you have in the real estate space. But first, I want to jump back and get into sort of how we got here. And I noticed that you went to University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And so the first question I usually ask us is, are you from the Chicago area? Yes, I'm a proud native Chicagoan, um, grew up in the western suburbs, and then uh, post went to Illinois and loved it there, home close to home, and then um, after moving back to Chicago, spent about the next 20 years bouncing from neighborhood to neighborhood, just trying to live as much of the urban experience as I could, including uh, into my uh, marriage, uh, made my wife move several times to... <laughs> kind of experiment with neighborhoods and also speculate a little bit on, on real estate. So, um, sure. In all of that, I love my city. Yeah. I love Chicago in all of your moving. Have you found like a favorite neighborhood or, um, it doesn't have to be, um, you know, the one you live in currently, but, uh, when you've had some really good experiences in maybe. Sure. Yeah. We, I, I always tried to go a little bit to the edge on where, um, markets were on the calm just as part of my business in retail. It was usually residential first and then the retail follow. So I tried to get ahead and speculate a little bit. Um, so I was, de- I definitely felt like I was a pioneer. I lived on the hot Fulton market when okay. I had meat, when I had, uh, I had meat packers as neighbors <laughs> on both sides. I was the only condo on Fulton Market, and my, my, that condo that I lived in with my wife on Fulton would have been uh, about two doors down from Google headquarters today, so that was oh, a little wow, pioneering yeah. at the time, um, and then we did South Loop before the South Loop was cool. I mean, the South Loop's always been cool, but before the South Loop had all these amenities, sure. um, 
And so, but I would say the, the most special neighborhood in Chicago to me would have to be uh, Pilsen Little Village. I have a lot of family history there. My dad grew up there as a, as a Slovak uh, family and uh, his, his father is an immigrant. Um, and uh, it has a special place to me and I go and visit a lot of historical spots from my dad's childhood. Yeah, I love that area, and I love um, especially how there's sort of a mixture of a couple different immigrant communities there right now. You can sort of um, get some Slovakian, some Ukrainian food, and sort of walk down the street and then get some really nice, like, elote or something. Um, So that's always fun. Um, One thing, I did want to jump back just a little bit because I saw something interesting during your college career. I saw that while you were getting the BS in marketing, you were also a radio host for a time. Ah, this is true. How did you get into that? Um, so I, you know, I, actually the the dream for me, the dream job was to be a broadcaster, to be a sportscaster, even though I was a business major. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's funny. It's, it's still a funny story at Mid America because I, I actually. Uh, started at an all African American station because I was a big WBMX uh, WGCI lover in Chicago. So I was the only white guy on an all black radio station at the time. And then I moved on to kind of the adult contemporary station, doing kind of graveyard shifts and champagne, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of Neil Diamond songs, which I didn't really like. Um, but you know, I thought that was a way for me to get some broadcast experience for my attempt to get into sports casting after college. But um, that's a whole nother that's a whole nother sad story <laughs> for another time. Sure. So, how do you go from getting your BS in marketing, being a business major, um, to coming back to Chicago and getting into real estate? By default, um, my brother, oldest brother Scott was in commercial real estate. He's an asset manager. He's uh, been in the business for 30 plus years. And I was wondering, you know, I came back, I tried to uh, get into a couple different markets in media unsuccessfully to get into sports casting in a decent sized market. So I kind of said, hey, it's time to give up that pursuit and get a real job. Um, and But I didn't know what I was going to do at that point. My brother was in commercial real estate and said, hey, Go, uh, it's just an idea, but you might like it. Uh, go get yourself an entry level job at CB Commercial and Research mm-hmm. and see where it leads. And so that's what I did. And um, ironically, I had to, I was making so little money as a researcher at the time and an entry level thing that I went and worked at Harry Carey's as a banquet bartender on weekends <laughs> to supplement my income when I started in real estate. Yeah, I hear a lot of those uh, sort of was doing this. Uh sort of crazy job do you have any uh crazy harry carey stories from oh that boy that could be a, that could be a whole another episode but that building that building is uh, very historic mm-hmm. and uh over there on uh uh dearborn and uh the top level is um is frank nitty's old apartment and it's still in its original condition just with restaurant equipment in it and he used to he used to overlook the intersection uh in case the cops were raiding his liquor the liquor liquor business um and shoot the uh the stash down a freight elevator into the basement so all that infrastructure is in that building and it's pretty oh cool gosh, that is really cool that's incredible i had no idea yeah yeah so um one thing i did notice about your 
um, your bio and your background is that you have a lot of research specialty. And that's not something um, that I have noticed really a lot in other, um, you know, brokers and tenant specialists. So is that, you know, back from your research beginnings or, um, yeah, what drives that sort of heavy research side of your background? Yeah, that's, it's interesting. I, I, I think I definitely had a mind for statistics and, um, analysis in some regard. Um, but I also, I'm a hybrid. I think I'm a hybrid. I'm not necessarily the natural born type A salesperson. Um, and a little bit more of an analytical uh, mind in that regard. So I, I think starting in research as an entry-level job was actually a great thing for me. It kind of gave me that perspective of, of really trying to study markets and understand trends a little bit as you as I moved into brokerage. Mm-hmm. And so I carried that with me um, and, you know, throughout my career, really. And I think I, I think it makes me go the extra mile in doing homework on, on both, you know, tenants uh, and markets and site selection. Um, I'm very you know, meticulous in that regard. And maybe it is a, a little bit of a lost skill. It's, it's probably a positive and a negative because you can get in brokerage. You definitely can get caught up. You have to keep a lot of plates spinning. And if you spend too much time getting overly uh, analytical or do too much research and not enough time actually selling or, or getting deals done, then right, absolutely. it can become a negative. So you got you to balance Yeah, it. you can know a lot about a neighborhood, but you still need to be able to actually sell some space in there. Exactly. But, yeah. Well put. Um, so you alluded to it a little bit earlier talking about how you've sort of been on the forefront of a lot of neighborhoods where you were living. Um, I assume you've adapted that into your like business model as well. So just tell me a little bit about how that research helps you um, lease or sell tenant spaces. Yeah, I, I was really fortunate when I joined Mid-America because I, I approached Paul Bryant, who was already a rising star and recruited by Mid-America as an urban specialist. And I knew I wanted to get into retail. And I also knew I loved the city and loved urban retail. Um, and it was sort of something that Mid-America wasn't really into at the time, 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, they, were, they were known as a suburban dominant player. And Paul was coming over there, and I approached him about being a runner, that his business plan was kind of exploding, and I wanted to follow it, not just because we, I thought we were a good team, but I loved what he was doing from the geography, et cetera. So we, we did that, and it's been 25 years of urban specialization for Paul and I, mm-hmm. um, and he gravitates uh, in our partnership way more towards product leasing, and I gravitate much more towards the tenant representation side, although we dabble in each other's world a little bit. Um, But that really, that focus has never changed in 25 years. And I think we've built kind of a reputation as, you know, uh, at least, if not the top, you know, at least top couple uh, brokers in Chicagoland in terms of urban expertise specifically. And, And that was a risk because, you know, you're not supposed to be that much of a geographical specialist in commercial real estate because markets change and, you want to be able to go with the flow a little bit. So it was a risk, but it's paid off really well. Yeah, I certainly think so. And I think you can see it, you know, um, obviously we do a lot of work with MidAmerica at the law firm. And so I'm sort of more attuned to see it maybe, but I see, I always look for the little signs and the windows of lease spaces just to see what, you know, company's name is <laughs> leasing or dealing with the space. And I definitely see um, MidAmerica out there a lot. And I think, you know, that's attributed to you and Paul, a lot of that work. 
And as you've alluded to, um, you know, you've been in this game for 20, 25 years now. What sort of changes have you seen across Chicago during that time in terms of the, um, you know, commercial real estate market? Fascinating so much in terms of, you know, in terms of trends, we've obviously seen, I'm lucky. I've only really seen the down, the major downturn in the banking crisis in 08, 09, and now, what we're experiencing right now is obviously unique, but I consider it only the second time in 25 years that I've seen a major shift, you know, just by market conditions uh, globally. But in that time, just the evolution of the city, the city when we started was always kind of hot and the central markets, Michigan Avenue and State Street, and Lincoln Park, et cetera. And I think retailers and others knew at that time already that, you know, you're going to have to pay more and, and operational costs might be more, but you're going to do some volumes that you've never dreamed possible if you if you take those risks in the city. Um, but over time, you know, that what's remarkable to me is in the shifts, it just that just keeps growing outward. It just keeps growing outward, whether it's uh, Pilsen and uh, Little Village today, or it was the northwest side into Logan Square and Bucktown many years ago and uh, Wicker Park, and then you start looking at, you know, hot neighborhoods into, out into Portage Park in the northwest side, and there's always an evolving, spreading neighborhood that's growing, changing, um, uh, developing, um, So and there's, and there's still so much more to go. It's still such an underserved city in so many different neighborhoods, uh, despite all of that growth and expansion. So it's really fascinating. Yeah. So as you're watching these neighborhoods expand, is there something that you are sort of looking for when you like, what are some markers of like, this is probably like, this is the next up and coming neighborhood. Is there like, is there something that you see in a neighborhood that shows you its potential? Whole Foods uh, <laughs> and Starbucks. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, it's not that basic. Obviously, um, you know, I, I think there's definitely some bellwethers. You, you definitely want um, the, the reality is is that income density, education levels uh, for different retail models, they all factor in in some way, shape, or form. I'm an urban specialist, so I definitely deal with retailers that are looking for sometimes lower uh, incomes, um, more ethnic diversity. Etc. is that their specific model, but they're uh, in the minority. The typical retailer is going to look for density, some sense of disposable income, um, and uh, and some education levels, etc. So, um, you know, in, in essence, I think you, you want to see that those trends are, are positive in, in every direction, that there's uh, increasing population growth, that there's... Uh, uh, you know, increasing income, increasing education levels, et cetera. That creates retail demand in most categories. So you'd want to see that. And But obviously housing always precedes retail. So it really, you know, it's not, it's so much, it's so much following the residential trends because they, uh, it comes first. Those are the trendsetters that go buy property and live there. Um, but then shortly when that density starts to form comes the need for services and amenities and and so we're kind of, you know, I think following the residential market very, uh, very acutely is really the best way to, to understand where the hot neighborhoods are coming. 
Yeah. And so you've mentioned now you did just mention Whole Foods. And um, I wanted to talk a little bit about how you author a biannual urban grocery study that MidAmerica does. And it analyzes um, characteristics of, I think, what you call daily needs. And I found Mm -hmm. that really interesting that um, the urban grocery market would be like once I saw that, like, obviously it would be different than any other grocery markets, but it's just not something you, you know, I think about (laughs) regularly. So if you could just tell me a little bit more about that study and what it shows you in terms of other, um, you know, retail factors. Sure. It goes back to 09, and I really wanted to, as grocery is just the backbone of our industry, it doesn't matter what period we're in, even now, even in COVID, you know, groceries thriving, trying to open, trying to figure out how to operate effectively, trying to deliver, uh, and and keeping us, uh, you know, all sustained during this pandemic. So there's never a time when grocery is not a relevant catalyst in our industry. There has never been a time in my 25 years when grocery isn't typically the starting point uh, to where retail wants to be and wants to evolve. It's the biggest daily needs generator that we have, obviously. So I decided that, you know, in my urban specialty, I'm really going to take just a look at supply and demand. Um, and when I did it in 09, it was interesting. I was tracking about uh, 3 million uh, folks in in the geography um, and about a million households and a plus or minus 300 grocers over 10,000 feet formed the backbone. And over time, every two years as I did it, it was just too intensive to do it every year, but every two years there were major changes, major shifts in the grocery market. Uh, newcomers coming, newcomers leaving. Uh, Dominic's going bankrupt. Dominic's box is getting absorbed. Uh, Mariano starting a new chain and a different price point. Um, you know, Trader Joe's continuing to slowly but surely uh, open stores. Uh, new ethnic competitors coming into the market. Uh, existing ethnic competitors starting to push into the suburbs and evolve their business model. So each, I could have done it every year, but every two years, the changes in the grocery market are dramatic in Chicago, just in yeah. that geography I mean- of, of 3 million. Yeah, it seems like a massive undertaking to, I mean, over 400 retail spaces in like a pretty small, you know, relatively small geographic location is a massive research undertaking. I don't know that you would have the time to do this every year. Um, You talked a lot about the evolution of the grocery market. And, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about how you've watched, you know, Chicago on this evolutionary trajectory. With all of your research, has there been any like trend or change in Chicago that surprised you? I think the biggest perplexing item to me in the urban grocery world is that no one's figured out how to do 10,000 feet effectively. Mm-hmm. I thought that we'd be littered with 10,000 foot neighborhood grocery stores. Uh, and, and, I, and several have thought about it, tried it from Walmart to startups to Tesco out of England. Um, so that's, that's very surprising to me that, that we, even now, you know, we've seen the evolution. I've always um, represented Trader Joe's and they, uh, that size, the Aldi Trader Joe's size of about 15,000 feet is unique. 
Uh, and I just, in Chicago, it's just perplexing to me that no one has been able to, in 25 years, come in and figure out a neighborhood grocery store model that's sustainable. Yeah, because, you know, um, obviously you want to compare Chicago maybe to places like New York, and they have a very strong, like, neighborhood bodega culture. And there are a few neighborhoods in Chicago that might have, um, you know, one or two similar of those. But it is, um, now that you mention it, very interesting that Chicago doesn't have a sort of neighborhood grocery store model. Um, I, you know, yeah, I, to your point, to New York, I, I remember, I remember like starting in the business and just salivating over Dean and DeLuca in New York. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's so many different times they were rumored to be coming here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and then every time I visit New York, I'm in a Dean and DeLuca, I'm like, you know, it's just that, that niche of a neighborhood gourmet, you know, foodie type experience, uh, grab and go. And obviously, you know, there's concepts here. It's not like we're devoid of that concept. However, just to that level and doing it that well and, and sustaining it has not been accomplished here. So it's odd. Yeah, that is a very, um, Very interesting that you point that out. I hope so far you've been enjoying my conversation with Dan. We don't want to keep you too long today, but Dan and I actually had a really long and in-depth conversation about uh, cannabis and how the real estate market works in Chicago. So if you'd like to listen to that, please um, go check out part two of this conversation in another podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bridging Chicago, as produced by the SATC Solutions Center. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guest. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of SATC Solutions Center, SATC Law, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the hosts and guests' individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to or use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceeding.